0: Oh, I've been
1: thinking. Oh, what do you
0: want to do there for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be
1: a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. And by we, I mean myself, Blaine Dowler, and my ever present co host, Trey Hooks. How are you doing, Trey?
0: Good, Blaine. How are you today? I'm doing fairly
1: well. This time we are taking a look at Gentlemen's Agreement. So this was originally released on November 11th, 1947, directed by Ilya Kazan, with a screenplay. It's credited exclusively to Moss Hart, although Ilya Kazan did have. A lot of input in it. He just couldn't be credited because he wasn't a WGA member. And it's based on the novel from 1946 and 47 by Laura Z. Hobson that is credited in two years because it was originally published in installments in Cosmopolitan Magazine. So for the plot, I'm just going to read the summary that is on Wikipedia here. Philip Schuyler Green is a widowed journalist who has just moved to New York City with his son, Tommy, and mother. Green meets with magazine publisher John Minifee, who asks Green, a genteel, to write an article on anti-Semitism. He is not very enthusiastic at first, but after initially struggling with how to approach the topic in a fresh way, Green is inspired to adopt a Jewish identity and writes about his first-hand experiences. At a dinner party, Phil meets Minifee's divorced niece Kathy Lacey, a preschool teacher who turns out to be the person who originally suggested the story. The next day, Phil tries to explain anti-Jewish prejudice to his young, precocious son, directly after displaying some anti-female prejudice of his own. Green tells his mother that he's struck by the odd notion that the idea for the article came from a girl at the magazine. His mother replies why women will be thinking next. Phil and Kathy begin dating. They agree to keep it secret that Phil is not Jewish. Phil has difficulty getting started on his assignment. He realizes he can never feel what another person feels unless he experiences it himself. He recalls having lived as an Okie on Route 66 or as a coal miner for previous writing jobs instead of tapping a man on the shoulder and making him talk. He then decides to write, I was Jewish for six months. Though Kathy seems to have liberal views, when he reveals what he intends to do she is taken aback and asks if he actually is Jewish. The strain on their relationship due to Kathy's subtle acquiescence to bigotry becomes a key theme in the film. At the magazine, Phil is assigned a secretary, Elaine Wales, who reveals that she too is Jewish. She changed her name to Get the Job. Her application under her real Jewish-sounding name, Estelle Wolofsky, was rejected. After Phil informs Minifie about Wales' experience, Minifee orders the magazine to adopt hiring policies that are open to Jews. Wales has reservations about the new policy, fearing that the wrong Jews will be hired and ruin things for the few Jews working there now. Phil meets fashion editor Anne Detry, who becomes a good friend and potentially more, particularly as strains develop between Phil and Kathy. Phil's childhood friend, Dave Goldman, who is Jewish, moves to New York for a job and lives with the Greens while he looks for a home for his family. Dave also experiences anti Semitism when some person in the armed forces tells him that he hates Jews and gets into a brief fight before the prejudiced soldier is taken away. Housing is scarce in the city, but it is particularly difficult for Goldman, since not all landlords will rent to a Jewish family. When Phil tells Dave about his project, Dave is supportive, but concerned. As Phil researches his story, he experiences several incidents of bigotry. When his mother becomes ill with a heart condition, the doctor discourages him from consulting a specialist with an obviously Jewish name, suggesting he might be cheated. When Phil reveals that he himself is Jewish, the doctor becomes uncomfortable and leaves. In addition, the janitor is shocked to see that a Jewish name is listed on the mailbox instead of his Christian name. Also, when Phil wants to celebrate his honeymoon at a swanky hotel for rich people in the country, the hotel manager refuses to register Phil because Phil is Jewish and tells him to register at a different hotel instead. Tommy becomes the target of bullies when his schoolmates discover he is Jewish. Phil is troubled by the way Kathy consoles Tommy. Telling him their taunts of dirty Jew are wrong because he isn't Jewish, not the epithet itself is wrong. Kathy's attitudes are revealed further when she and Phil announce their engagement. Her sister Jane invites them to a celebration in her home in Darien, Connecticut, which is known to be a restricted community where Jews are not welcome. Fearing an awkward scene, Kathy wants to tell her family and friends that Phil is only pretending to be a Jew, but Phil prevails on Kathy to tell only Jane. At the party, everyone is very friendly to Phil, though many people are unable to attend at the last minute. Dave announces that he will have to quit his job because he cannot find a residence for his family. Kathy owns a vacant cottage in Darien, but though Phil sees it as the obvious solution to Dave's problem, Kathy is unwilling to offend the neighbors by renting it to a Jewish family. She and Phil break their engagement. Phil announces that he'll be moving away from New York when his article is published. When it comes out, it is very well received by the magazine staff. Kathy meets with Dave and tells him how sick she felt when Pardigast told a bigoted joke. However, she has no answer when Dave repeatedly asks her what she did about it. She comes to realize that remaining silent condones the prejudice. The next day, Phil tells Dave that he and his family will be moving into the cottage in Darien, and Kathy will be moving in with her sister next door to make sure they are well treated by their neighbors. When Phil hears this, he reconciles with Kathy. So that's the Wikipedia summary. It is a little out of sequence. It makes it sound like he decides to adopt a a Jewish identity much closer to the beginning of the film than that actually happens. That's probably, what, about the 45-minute mark in a two-hour film?
0: Right. And the engagement party and his son being in the fight at school are flipped in the film.
1: Yeah. But that is the plot. So it is... One of the earliest films on anti-Semitism, not the earliest necessarily, there is another film released the same year, also nominated for Best Picture, that dealt with the topic that came out about three months prior, although that was a last-minute switch to make it about anti-Semitism. It was originally supposed to be about homophobia, and that's Crossfire. I'm really conflicted on this one I, I I think I am in a lot of ways too because it's it is a good message, but is it the right way to arrive at that message
0: it, it's that I'm also rightly or wrongly I'm comparing it with what's going on right now and there's no form of Bigotry that is more okay than any other form of bigotry. But when you compare what goes on in this film with some of what's been going on in the world, and particularly the United States the past couple of months, this pales in comparison. It is not
1: right that... People are not even getting an interview based on the ethnicity that people hear in the name, but they're they're still alive at the end of it, which is not necessarily the case in the real world.
0: And where some of my confliction comes from is, barring some issues which we'll get into, this is probably a good representation. Of the everyday petty prejudices that are the seeds from which those more serious outbursts that we've seen lately grow, mm-hmm. I'm going to use this term you can I don't know if it's appropriate to apply it in in the lens of anti-Semitism, but Kathy is the epitome of I won't say white privilege, but Kathy is the epitome of privilege anti-semitism is wrong so long as it doesn't affect her privileges
1: yeah we get that we're she is one of the people that pays lip service to it not actively promoting it but not fighting discrimination when she's facing it like dave finally got through to her when she was talking about the joke he's like well what did you do well i felt sick yeah but what did you do what did you say?" And he had to push hard to get her to realize that. And you know she didn't at least come up with the, it's only a joke response that a lot of people have. Because it may only be a joke to you, but it's not necessarily only a joke to the people in the groups that it's about. And this is a movie that almost didn't happen. There's a scene that's omitted from the summary where a Jewish person is saying, hey, don't do this, it's just going to stir up trouble, we want to handle this quietly. That scene is not in the novel, that was inspired because that was the reaction producer Daryl F. Zanuck had when he told other people in Hollywood he was making this movie. Zanek was not Jewish himself, but he was divine, or denied membership into a club in Los Angeles under the assumption that he was Jewish, because almost all studio producers at the time were. And that conversation in the movie was inspired by the conversation that the Jewish producers had with him when they found out they came to him and said, This isn't the way we want to handle it. Please don't make this movie. Cary Grant was offered the lead role, but he felt because he was Jewish and he felt he looked Jewish, taking the role was going to hurt his career because people wouldn't be able to see him as a Gentile anymore. They and he didn't think they'd believe him as a Gentile in the first place. So Gregory Peck took the lead role. John Garfield is a Jewish actor who took the role as Dave Goldman because he felt the message of the film was important to come out against the anti-Semitism. So even though he's only a supporting cast member who doesn't even appear until he's over halfway through, because he was lending his support and they wanted to show that they were trying to do this for the Jewish community, and so many of them were opposed to the production of this movie, they gave John Garfield a full actor salary, not a supporting actor salary. So, you know, they... I believe the filmmakers were doing everything that they could to make the world better because they saw something that was wrong. And I will give them all the kudos and credit for that. But at the same time, yeah, it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world. I... I don't know that pretending to be Jewish when you're not is really the right approach. I could see that offending people. I'm not a member of the Jewish community myself. I may be wrong. That's just a complete guess
0: on my part. Well, there, I felt like there were two problems with the approach and I'm not Jewish either. And If I use a poor choice of words, I'm just going to ask for forgiveness up front from our listeners. I have always viewed Jew versus Gentile as more a cultural and religious difference than a a racial difference. And again, all, all bigotry is equally bad. I'm not saying that, you know, being against one because of their... Um, religion or culture versus the color of their skin is any better or or worse. But but one of the problems that I had with this was co-opting a Jewish identity was as easy as putting a suffix on your last name. You never see Gregory Peck make any attempt to outwardly reflect that he is of the Jewish faith or, or culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I, because of my relationships and experiences of people from that culture and that faith, it is those cultural differences that are the big differences that I see. They're not outward, physical differences, if you follow what I'm saying. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I never saw him adopt a a practice that would really make him experience. My second issue was he goes around and picks fights, so to speak. I mean, he's portrayed as a very moral crusading character. Muckrakes is not the right word, but he purposefully antagonizes to see people's reactions, if you understand what I mean.
1: In, in some ways, yeah. A lot of times, when he when he sees the hint of anti-Semitism, he digs. So rather than letting it go, he, you know, but he, you know, it, he's poking the wound, as you're saying. But I, I found he, yeah, he does do the poking the wound, but only after he's heard that hint of anti-Semitism. The only thing I've seen that he did in his film that was really setting it up was, as part of the initial plan, sending out two applications to each of a variety of jobs and graduate schools and universities with one Jewish sounding name and one Christian sounding name, just to see the responses of how many times the Christian sounding name gets further than the Jewish sounding name. And that's actually when the conversation with his secretary comes out. When she says, "Yeah, I had to get a job like that," you say, "Oh, really? Where? Well, here," and that's when he takes it up, and it you know it goes beyond Minifee actually saying, "No, from now on," because when they cut to that conversation, Minifee is there with the HR department. He's like, "You mean with all these locations, we don't have a single secretary? Really? I don't believe that." Like the guy was claiming, "Oh no, it was." So the HR guy was claiming it wasn't anti-Semitism, right? And the president's going. Essentially the statistics don't support that. That's unbelievable. So not only was he saying from now on it's everyone there, and he put out a job specifically saying that yeah, religion is not relevant or in the in the Wantad. But he even tells him, you know, and if that secretary, that Miss Wales, that started this, if she is if you ever have to fire her for any reason, I want to review that case personally. So he recognizes the potential for for retribution and says
0: no i'm going to be watching for that too it, and again it the one note that i really felt this film hit perfectly was the motivation of self-interest and privilege you know you mentioned it in the synopsis she was afraid of making it an issue because she didn't want the wrong kind of Jews to start working there and what I think she meant by that was she didn't want someone who was so stereotypically Jewish that her peers started to apply those stereotypes to her that could
1: well be yeah it is it is walking a tough line and I not sure it always stays on the right side of it. So again, this this may be a road to hell is paved with good intentions. Jumping a little ahead in the conversation, well, we should come back to the rest of the cast and crew and everything. Mm-hmm. But I think that also influences the way it's remembered because of the five films nominated for Best Picture this year, both IMDb users and Letterboxd users give this the lowest rating of the five. Not a bad rating, but just not as strong as the others. The IMDb rating is a 7.2 out of 10. And the other nominees, we have Crossfire at 7.3, and that's the film that was originally written to oppose homophobia, but was changed during production because they said, no, we can't go that far. The Bishop's Wife comes in at 7.6 out of 10. Great Expectations, which is actually a British film released in Britain in 1946 that didn't come to the U.S. until 1947, comes in at a 7.8 out of 10 on the IMDb. And Miracle on 34th Street is the 7.9. So we've got two of the best-remembered Christmas films mm-hmm. and two of the earliest films with anti-Semitism. You go to Letterboxd, and Gentleman's Agreement is a 3.4 out of 5. Crossfire is 3.5, Great Expectations is 3.8, The Bishop's Wife is also a 3.5, and Miracle on 34th Street is 3.7. So the two websites seem to be in agreement that Gentleman's Agreement is the lowest of the bunch, but not by a wide margin, and that the best is either Great Expectations or Miracle on 34th Street.
0: Well, let's bring it back around to the actors. What did you think of Gregory Peck and Dorothy McGuire, the two leads in this?
1: I, I like them. Gregory Peck, he's a likable guy, but he is often a bit stiff. So he's, he's not really a method actor. I'm not sure that he's really emoting, but he's still very likable. And this probably is setting him up because he he's still best known for To Kill a Mockingbird. And I think some of that is coming from here. Interestingly, both he and Ilya Kazan said he wasn't giving his best performance. And later in his life, he said Gregory Peck said it was because he was not mature enough to give Ilya Kazan what he wanted. So they never worked together after this because they didn't mesh very well. And he was actually, he was known for have or quoted as saying Ilya Kazan was not the right director. And he said that was a misquote. What he actually meant is that they just weren't on the same wavelength. So it's not that Ilya Kazan was the wrong director for the project. It was just the two of them were the wrong pairing for the project. Uh, Dorothy McGuire, I quite liked. She, she seemed a little more natural in the role. And I, I believe what she's saying, because she was conveying thoughts and emotions that we actually do
0: see. Dorothy McGuire is part of where I'm conflicted. So one of my father's favorite films, and therefore by osmosis, one of my favorite films is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And she's great there. And I just struggled with her in this film. And I couldn't figure out, am I watching a really good actress who I'm having a hard time with because she's playing, ultimately, a frustrating and unlikable character. Or is there a lack of chemistry between her and Gregory Peck? But I just, I didn't, like, I don't think it's a bad performance. But there's just something about the character and the way that she portrayed it that was just like nails on a blackboard to me. I just... When she was on the screen, I wanted her to be off because I was annoyed with her.
1: Okay. And it's interesting that neither of us were all that thrilled with them, but they were both actually nominated for Oscars. Didn't win Oscars for their performances, but they were both nominated this year. The director, Ilya Kazan, I do like his work. Mm -hmm. He's got 21 director credits. And the second is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. He'd also previously directed Boomerang and The Sea of Grass in the same year. And this is his first Oscar nomination as director, and he won. We might as well go through all the awards here, because I think the conversation is just going there anyway. So yeah, we have already gone through the Best Picture nominees, and this is the winner. Ilya Kazan won for Best Director, opposite Henry Coster for The Bishop's Wife. Edward Dimitri for Crossfire, George Cooker for A Double Life, and David Lean for Great Expectations. Best Actor went to Ronald Coleman for A Double Life. John Garfield, who does play, he, he's the the friend here, who actually is Jewish. He was nominated for his work in Body and Soul, so he wasn't nominated for this film, but he did get nominated for this year. And Gregory Peck, we mentioned, lost out. William Powell was nominated for Life with Father, and Michael Redgrave was nominated for Morning Becomes Electra.
0: I want to see Body and Soul now. I felt like the supporting actors gave the stronger performance in this film, and I'm wondering if Best Supporting Actor would have been more of a race if John Garfield were nominated under It rather than, for this film rather than Best Actor. I haven't seen Body and Soul, so I don't know the quality of that performance, but...
1: Maybe. We'll see. I think, well, when we get to this year's Best Supporting Actor, it's a tough one to beat. Yeah. For Best Actress, that went to Loretta Young for The Farmer's Daughter. She beat out Joan Crawford for Possessed, Susan Hayward in Smash Up, The Story of a Woman, Dorothy McGuire as Kathy Lacey here, and Rosalind Russell, also for Morning Becomes Electra. Best Actor went to Edmund Gwynn, as Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street. And that is a tough performance to beat. It
0: it is. I, I don't I, I don't doubt it. It's just one of those things when I when I see these nominations, I you kind of start thinking of some of the thought process behind it. So would of Garfield have had a better chance as best supporting? Was it the fact that he was nominated for best actor that stopped him from getting the supporting nomination and so on. So
1: Yeah, so Gentleman's Agreement wasn't actually nominated in the Best Supporting category. The other competitors were Charles Bickford for Farmer's Daughter, Thomas Gomez for Ride the Pink Horse, Robert Ryan for Crossfire, and Richard Widmark for Kiss of Death. Best Supporting Actress did go to Celeste Holm as Anne Detchery in Gentleman's Agreement. So that's the fashion designer. Definitely deserved it. The other nominees were Ethel Barrymore for The Paradigm Case, which is our... Tolkien Hitchcock referenced this episode. (laughs) Gloria Graham for Crossfire. Marjorie Maine for The Agonite. And and Anne Revere was also nominated for her work in Gentleman's Agreement as Mrs. Green. You know, because the the character who calls out the sexism that he expresses when he says, well, it was a girl's idea. Yeah, that character never actually gets a first name. She's only Mrs. Green. Best Original Screenplay went to Sidney Sheldon for The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer beating out the writers of Body and Soul, A Double Life, Monsieur Verdeux, and Shoeshine. The best screenplay went to George Seaton's screenplay from a story by Valentine Davis from Miracle on 34th Street. He also directed that. That beat out the screenwriters for Gentleman's Agreement. Know, that was Boss Hart, based on that Laura Z. Hobson story. Boomerang, Crossfire, and Great Expectations. So, a whole lot of overlap there with the the best picture nominees. Best motion picture story went to Miracle on 34th Street, beat out A Cage of Nightingales, It Happened on Fifth Avenue, Kiss of Death, and Smash Up, The Story of a Woman. The best cartoon subject went to Tweety Pie, beating out Chippendale, Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Mouse, Pluto's Blue Note, and Tubby the Tuba. The Best Documentary Feature went to Design for Death, beating out Journey into Medicine and the World is Rich. Documentary Short Subject went to First Steps, beating out Passport to Nowhere and School in the Mailbox. The Live Action One Real Short Subject went to Goodbye Miss Turlock. The Live Action Short Subject Two Real went to Climbing the Matterhorn. Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture went to the score for A Double Life by Miklos Rosa and the only other Best Picture nominee that was nominated in that category is The Bishop's Wife. The Best Scoring of a Musical Picture went to Mother Wore Tights by Alfred Newman, who also scored Gentleman's Agreement. The Best Original Song went to Zippity-Doo-Dah from The Song of the South, which, as trouble as that film is, that's a a tough Oscar to argue with. Best Sound Recording went to the of Gordon E. Sawyer on The Bishop's Wife, beating out Green Dolphin Street and T-Men. Best Art Direction set direct decoration Black and White went to Great Expectations. It was one of two nominees beating out The Foxes of Harrow. Best Art Direction for Color. Black Narcissus beat out Life with Father. Best Cinematography Black and White. Great Expectations beat out The Ghost of Mrs. Moore and Green Dolphin Street. Color Cinematography, Black Narcissist beat out Life with Father and Mother wore tights. Film Editing, Body and Soul beat out against The Bishop's Wife, Gentleman's Agreement, Green Dolphin Street, and Odd Man Out. And Best Special Effects, Green Dolphin Street beat out Unconquered. For the honorary awards, James Baskett won an honorary award for his role as Uncle Remus in Song of the South. I'm not sure why they decided that's an honorary award. They're just going to give him an Oscar rather than doing just nominating him for best actor best Actress, which I'm afraid that's a form of racism right there
0: Mm-hmm. uh
1: Bill and Coo, which is a nineteen forty eight film got an honorary award for the artistry and patience blended in a novel and entertaining use of the medium of motion pictures and there's another honorary award to Colonel William M. Selig, Albert E. Smith, Thomas Armat, and George K. Spoor, members of the small group of pioneers whose belief in a new medium and whose contributions to its development blaze the trail along which the motion picture has progressed in their lifetime from obscurity to worldwide acclaim. The best foreign language film went to Shine," That was an Italian film. And from there, there's... You know, Wikipedia here is now listing presenters and performers. So Gentleman's Agreement got more nominations than anything else this year. It got eight nominations, where Bishop's Wife, Crossfire, and Great Expectations had five each. And then there's, you know, Miracle on 34th Street is one of the films that got four nominations. Body and Soul got three. And there's a number of others who got two. And for the multiple winners, Gentleman's Agreement and Miracle on 34th Street took home three awards each, and Black Narcissist at Double Life and Great Expectations each won two. And for completeness, we talked about the Golden Globe winners. There's a lot of overlap with Gentleman's Agreement winning Best Picture, Ronald Coleman winning Best Actor for Double Life, Rosalind Russell winning Best Actress for Morning Becomes Electra*. Edmund Gwynn for Supporting Actor in Miracle on 34th Street, Celeste Holm for Supporting Actress in Gentleman's Agreement, and Ilya Kazan for Gentleman's Agreement. So up to this point, the only difference in the awards picked someone else that the Oscars also nominated. Screenplay, Miracle on 34th Street. Music, Life with Father, Cinematography, Black, Narcissist. Most Promising Newcomer Male went to Richard Widmark for Kiss of Death. Most Promising Newcomer Female was Lois Maxwell for That Hagen Girl. A Special Award for the Best Juvenile Actor went to Dean Stockwell for his role as Tommy in Gentleman's Agreement. And the Special Achievement Award went to Walt Disney for Bambi, the Hindustani version for furthering the influence of the screen.
0: Yes, it's worth calling out that Al from Quantum Leap was working as a child actor. In the late 40s. So if you want to see what Dean Stockwell looked like as a young boy, watch Gentleman's Agreement.
1: Yeah, he also has a couple good turns in *Colombo*, which is always worth watching. Because *Colombo* is awesome. Yes. Yeah, with these awards, I, it's tough to say that they, that they got something wrong. So even though Gentleman's Agreement is actually the, the lowest scored film today... Hollywood does like their message films and the Bishop's Wife and Miracle on 34th street are not so much message films. Yeah. I'm not going to say that, that they got it wrong. Although interestingly, when we talked about the ratings in terms of the nominees, IMDB and Letterboxd both agree that the best film of the year is actually out of the pass,
0: which is a great
1: film. <laughs> it is. Uh, out of the Past and Crossfire have both been released in the Warner Brothers Film Noir collections. So I've I've got, I think, the first four of those. So of these Best Picture nominees, this was the first time I've seen Gentleman's Agreement. I have seen The Bishop's Wife and Miracle on 34th Street multiple times each. And I remember enjoying Crossfire when I saw it, but I saw it right when that box set came out so it's been a good 15 years if not more since i've seen it and i i remember liking it and enjoying it but i don't remember it well enough to say how it would stack up against these and it's similar with out of the past where i saw it with that box set so
0: i won't go into all of my film watching projects here but shortly before we started watching films for the podcast I joined Letterboxd because I saw that you were on there and I started ranking films as I was re-watching through my collection. So while I've seen more films than what I'm about to mention from 47, these are the only films that I've ranked as I've done, gone through my rewatch. And out of the films that I've watched, Gentleman's Agreement for me ranked the lowest. Out of the past... And uh, Miracle on 34th Street and Monsieur Verdeaux all ranked higher for me. Black Narcissus, the lady from Shanghai and Gentleman's Agreement all have the same ranking from me. So for however it does the algorithm, Letterboxd is listing Gentleman's Agreement last on my list. But uh, if I look at the how many stars out of how many stars those three have the same score.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, I really wish I'd had time to, to re-watch Out of the Past and Crossfire. And as you said, Monsieur Verdoux is another one that the IMDb and Letterboxd both put above Gentleman's Agreement. So if we actually look at even the top 12 here on Letterboxd for the year, Out of the Past is number one. Then Black Narcissus, Monsieur Duveau, or Monsieur Verdoux, sorry, Odd Man Out, Nightmare Alley, The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, The Lady from Shanghai, Record of a Tenement Gentleman, Daisy Kenyon, Brute Force, The Ball at Anjo House, and Quai des Ofres are the top 12, and Miracle on 34th Street is the first actual nominee on the list, followed by Body and Soul, Pursued, Dark Passage, and so forth. And if you look at it on the IMDb, Out of the Past is number one. Monsieur Verdeau is number two. And Miracle on 34th Street is number three. And then we have Ghost of Mrs. Mirror, Coie de Nightmare Alley, Record of a Tenement Gentleman, Black Narcissist, Odd Man Out, Oléa de Estrella, It Happened on Fifth Avenue, Cinderella, The Lady from Shanghai, Brute Force, Body and Soul, Bishop's Wife, Dark Passage, Kiss of Death, Ride the Pink Horse, Crossfire, Bachelor in the Bobby Soxer. It Always Rains on Sunday, The Unsuspected, I Became a Criminal, One Wonderful Sunday, Pursued, Possessed, Nor Apprentice, Life with Father, and finally we hit Gentleman's Agreement at 30 on the list. You'll notice that Great Expectations is not on either list, because they both list the years by country of origin. So Gentleman's Agreement is ranked in 1946 rather than 1947 in both lists, because that was the British release date, not the American release date. So the the way that's ranked. So that that comes in with a with a 7.8 on the IMDB. So that would put it somewhere in the 5 to 8 range. So after Miracle on 34th Street, but before any of the other nominees on IMDB. And letterboxed, it would be somewhere in the top 12, because it is. Are, no, it's not in the top 12, it's in the next 12 because it's slightly below Miracle on 34th Street, but then it's above the films that are coming in in that next row on the category. So, yeah, like I said, it's of the films I remember clearly, this is the best message film. It's not necessarily the most entertaining, and it does have issues. I mean, like you said. He tells people he's Jewish, but he doesn't change the way he behaves at all, which on the one hand does support the idea that the treatment he's getting is exclusively for being Jewish, because that's the only thing he's changed in his life is telling people he's Jewish. But on the other hand, yeah, he hasn't actually done anything to integrate with the Jewish community and learn about the rest of their experience.
0: And as you've said multiple times, it, it's a tough line to Hugh. I mean, we would not have wanted Gregory Peck to start applying prosthetics to try and fit some ill-perceived physical stereotype. We certainly want wouldn't want this to go down the soul man route. So Yeah, and like we said, it is,
1: it's tough to talk about this because on the one hand, we see issues with it. On the other hand, we are recording this in August 2020. So this is a few weeks after one of the Republican senators in the southern U.S. was called out for what he claims was accidentally using Photoshop to increase the size of the Jewish Democratic nominee's nose in his print materials, which was striking people as anti-Semitic and just You know, trying to exaggerate the features that are stereotypically associated with Jewish people, which is angering, frankly. Yes. (laughs) So clearly, not everyone has assimilated the message that this film was trying to convey several decades ago. Which, no one is claiming that a movie is going to end racism. Not in and of itself, but it can help start a conversation that needs to happen. And it can really help, I think, you know, the people who are like Kathy, who don't consider themselves racist, but who don't speak out when they see it. If we can even just start challenging that aspect, that is going to to help make the world a better place. Just get people to stand up and say, no. It may not change the minds of the racists, but it might convince them to hide those views again and stop acting the way they are acting. I think we can agree that you know this this film has great goals. We just don't know that it actually achieves them in an appropriate way. Would that be fair? It would. It would. So, who would you recommend this to?
0: I'm struggling coming up with a group other than. Award winners. I mean, you literally just said it. It doesn't go about its message in the best way, and to be fair, I can't think of a better way they could have done it, particularly in 1947, but when we wanted to try and get a point across to our kids exactly what was going on with um, the George Floyd protest and why the protests were important and to kind of nail home ha- what happens or what are the consequences of bigotry and prejudice. We went with Selma. We didn't go back to *Gentlemen's Agreement. So even, even as a message film, I think there are better message films out there that speak against bigotry and prejudice. I will say, however, It is specific to anti-Semitism, so if you wanted something that kind of illustrated uh, that particular uh, prejudice, this would probably be a good film for it.
1: Yeah, that that is true. It is, like I said, it is good for the the final message. They were concerned about whether or not this would even be approved because the person who enforced the Hayes Code at the time had made anti-Semitic statements multiple times in public. And they were also concerned about whether or not they would be able to have a movie with a divorced character, because that's one thing that we didn't spend a lot of time on, but the the female love interest, Kathy, has been divorced. And that almost didn't get approved. So it's it is a film I would recommend, again, for specifically anti-Semitism. This is good, although I do want to rewatch Crossfire. Like you said, a better way to do it aside from from actually having genuinely Jewish characters instead of someone pretending to be Jewish. I can't think of many other changes because everything else is right there. I think it almost would have been better had this happened. And one of the things that we didn't bring up that shows the stresses he was under and how challenging it was, he decided he was going to write I was Jewish for six months. But when he finally stops and publishes, the title is I was Jewish for eight weeks. So he couldn't make it the six months. He was done before that. So there, there is that value to it. So if you're a huge fan of Gregory Peck or Ilya Kazan, Kazan's name is going to come up again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He is an excellent director. Good birthday, too. He was born September 7th, 1909.
0: <laughs> yes, we definitely approve all people born September 7th.
1: I would recommend that, but it's. If you're going to be watching it with children, it is worth having the conversation about whether or not this was the right way for Skylar Green or, you know, Phil Gregory Peck's character to do this. Because I'm not sure if it is or isn't, but I, I think there is value in that conversation. And there's always value in teaching kids that racism is bad and is not to be condoned, supported, or allowed.
0: While his character's heart was in the right place, so to speak, in the end, it was an exploitive act.
1: It was, although he wasn't doing it for the notoriety or for the fame. At first, he wasn't even really excited about the article. He, it was just an assignment he was going to crank out and move on before Minifree said, oh, No, don't know, anyone can look up statistics. I want you because you have written some very moving pieces. I need something emotional. And that was the piece he was struggling with. That took him a long time before he finally figured out his approach. And this was after he met the, you know, Kathy.
0: <laughs>
1: that actually was uh, a highlight for me of the film, which we haven't talked about. He would met Kathy at a party and then he talked to Mr. Minifree. And as he was leaving Minifree's office, Minifree says, oh, do you by chance want Kathy's phone number? And Phil just rattles it off and says, I always go to the source. (laughs) So that, that was a nice moment with that I always go to the source line from a journalist. So, you know, there is value here. If you want to see a very young Dean Stockwell, that's here too. But again, this is a movie... Don't watch it as just straight entertainment. Watch it if you are ready to think and process. And I want to rewatch Crossfire before I decide which one might actually do the better job of the anti-Semitic message. For anti-Semitism specifically, it might be this one. Like I said, my memories of Crossfire are vague, but considering it started as homophobic and or anti-homophobia and then switched to anti-Semitism, you know that makes me wonder how specific it is. So this is probably important for movie history because the anti-racism film wasn't really a thing yet.
0: Well, and because of the history of Eli Kazan, we're less than a decade away from him being blacklisted. Yeah. Which is a different type of prejudice, but also had very real life consequences for him.
1: Oh, very much so.
0: So any closing thoughts? No, I, I, I'll i just give our usual disclaimer, just because we are not excited about a film or trumpeting it as the best film of the year, that never indicates that it was a bad movie. I mean, we rattled off a couple of classics that this film was contending against this year. So while it's an important film, it just didn't end up being as entertaining as uh, those others, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't watch Gentleman's Agreement or that Gentleman's Agreement's not a good film. I actually have respect for it because it made me feel so conflicted. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Even then, I'm still... I may not have chosen Gentleman's Agreement as the best film of the year, but it's not a case where I could say The Academy was wrong to do it. So it's... Uh, we' we're, we're not saying I don't think that it doesn't deserve best picture. It's just not like some years where we're going, "Oh yes, this is absolutely the right one. It's just eh, there's room for conversation. It, it might have been tough to figure out which box to check if we were filling out the ballot.
0: we We, we keep making this film our whipping boy, so uh, I'm, I'm sure someone somewhere is, cur- is going to curse me as I say this. This was not a cavalcade folks. Don't, don't, don't think that. No. No, not at all.
1: And as troubled as it was, it still is better than a lot of the films we've seen up to this point. Mm-hmm. In less competitive years, I would say this is clearly the best picture. Anyway, um shall we talk about nineteen forty-eight for our next podcast?
0: Yes, and I, I haven't seen I'm very very familiar with this subject matter, but I haven't seen this film yet, so I'll be interested in seeing how it's done, but uh next time we look at Laurence Olivier's Hamlet.
1: Yep, and we forgot a while ago we decided to list all the nominees in case you guys wanted to or the listeners wanted to watch the rest. And we haven't been doing that lately. So Hamlet was up against Johnny Belinda, the Red Shoes, the Snake Pit, and the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is also a perfect fit for the nominees for Best Director. So I think The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is probably the most widely available of those nominees. My copy of Hamlet is the Criterion Collection release, which I've also never seen, so this will be interesting. I am aware of Hamlet, but I've never actually seen an adaptation of Hamlet as Hamlet before.
0: And I'll throw this out there for our listeners. I am not a member of this service myself, so I'm not necessarily promoting it, but if you're trying to find some of these uh, films, particularly ones that are in the Criterion collection, and you don't feel like subscribing to the Criterion service, HBO Max has a license to a good deal of the Criterion collection, so you may find it there if that's more where your streaming proclivities lie. Okay, I don't have HBO Max. I'm
1: not even 100% sure it's available in Canada. I think a lot of HBO product ends up on Crave. But uh, Criterion was one of the places that released day and date available in US and Canada. A lot of the US streaming services are not available in Canada, but Criterion is one of them. So that is, if that's more to your liking, that's available as well. And the Criterion streaming services have the Criterion bonus features in most cases as well.
0: Both services have the Red Shoes and Hamlet as part of their library, or as part of their offerings right now, because I believe Criterion has all of the Powell and Pressburger film.
1: Okay, yeah, that that does make sense. They are good about getting complete libraries when they can. All right, so if you've got any feedback about this or any other movies that we've discussed, you can always email it to. 99years100films at gmail.com or your podcatcher should have a link so that you can leave us a voicemail as well. And Trey and I are definitely open to recording the one-off feedback episodes so we can get those out in a more timely fashion because as you could tell by us saying we're recording this in August 2020, (laughs) we do like to record in advance.
0: I will throw a little shout out there. I want to thank uh, Chuck Rodriguez, who I know follows us, on uh facebook he's commented a couple times on our posts, and he's done a good job of helping us spread the word of the podcast so uh, really appreciate that yes very much so thanks a lot chuck and for
1: everyone else thank you for listening
0: see you next time my mom always said life was like a box of chocolates you never know what you're going to get I want some more.